Well, I'll tell you, I praise, I'm thankful for my, my children and, and just their love for the Lord and their investment in things that matter for the work of God. And all of our, God's given all of our children gifts and abilities, uh, but he gave them for a reason. And the reason was for his own personal glory and his honor. And it's, it's, it's just a real joy to get to watch uh, my kids serve the Lord. And I'm thankful that they enjoy uh, doing it. And it is great to be here with you. And, you know, outside of our relationship with God, I think one of the greatest blessings of being a Christian is the relationships that he gives us with fellow Christians. Uh, and I, I have to be honest, I feel like one of the richest, I, I'm going to be 40 this year, but I still consider myself young, uh, very young, very, very young. And, uh, but one of the greatest blessings I feel like in my life is, is a lot of the men of God that God's put in my life. I feel very, I feel like the Lord's just put so many great men who have walked with God. And one of the men that the Lord had put in my life is your pastor. I'm very thankful for him. And, and I can't really tell you, you know, I think, I think it's so important for us to get around people who want to, who, who make us want to be better Christians. If everyone we're around always makes us feel comfortable about where we are, we, we, need to, we need to find some people who stretch us. You know what I'm talking about? People you get around, they make you want to pray harder and, and launch out into the deep more. And that's your pastor. And I, I can remember times uh, pastoring in San Diego in those early years where it was a grind. I mean, a grind. Uh, in those first couple years in Idaho, trying to get the church moving and get it going. And uh, your preacher would send me these text messages um, uh, of him with a family that he led to Christ. And, and I'm telling you, those text messages that he would send me would just fire me up and inspire me. And he's just out of nowhere texts me, hey, how you doing, Brother Hetzer? I was praying for you. And uh, I know you know this, but you have a wonderful pastor and pastor's wife. And I'm telling you, if the Lord, for whatever reason, wouldn't allow me uh, to be pastoring somewhere, your pastor is the kind of pastor I could follow. I could definitely be under him. And I just thank the Lord for you uh, and for your testimony and really for the encouragement you are to many uh, in my generation. And so I'm thankful uh, for that. Well, I'm going to invite you, if you're able to stand with me, let's take our Bibles tonight and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 tonight. We're going to just look at two verses tonight in Revelation chapter 2. Verse 12 of Revelation 2. The Bible says this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things saith he, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days, wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. I want to preach on this subject tonight very simply, Satan's seat. Satan's seat. Let's pray. Father, we come to you tonight and uh, I have just enjoyed 
uh, hearing your servants. And Lord, we do recognize, I think every missionary, every pastor would recognize that anything that has been said tonight, any ounce of wisdom or insight or, or anything that's been accomplished, it's all been accomplished by you through your spirit, by your power, by your word, and that if, if we remove your breath, if we remove you and your word from us, nothing gets done. And Lord, I pray that tonight as your word gets preached, really my prayer, Father, would be just help me to feel like I'm at home. Help me to preach with clarity and with power. And I pray that you would help me to articulate what you've put on my heart personally. Bless the preaching of your word, we ask in Jesus' name. All of God's people said, you may be seated. When you come here to verse 12, you have Jesus through the apostle John addressing the church of Pergamos. And I love, I love as Jesus begins to speak to them, I love the very beginning of what he tells them in verse 13. He says this, I know thy works and where thou dwellest. Now, certainly Jesus knew where they were geographically. Pergamus was on the very western edge of what we would call modern-day Turkey. If you were to go to the very west of Turkey where the Aegean Sea was and come in 15 miles inland, that's where Pergamus sat. And, of course, Jesus knew where they were geographically, but when he says... I know where you dwell. He's not talking about their zip code. He's not talking about where they are geographically. In verse 13, he speaks about the days in which they're living. When Jesus says, I know where thou dwell, what he's saying is this. I know what's going on in your life. I know what your church is facing. I understand the city that you're in. I understand the culture that you're in. I understand the opposition that you're facing. I understand the, the situation in which you're going through. Jesus immediately reminds them that they are not alone, that they are not by themselves, that Christ is with them, and he knows everything that's taking place in their life. And I just want to remind you tonight that Jesus not only knows your physical address, he not only knows the location of where you get up. He not only knows the location of where you go to work. He not only knows the location of where you go home. Jesus understands your financial difficulties. Jesus understands your relational struggles. Jesus understands the obstacles and the pressures and the anxieties that you go through. He is not just aware of it, but he is with you and aware of everything going on in your life. And so he tells them, I, I know what's going on in your life, which, which leads to the uh, obvious question, well, what is it, Christ, that Jesus, what is it that you know about what's going on? What kind of days, what kind of situation uh, are they living in? And he says in verse 13, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. It's pretty, that's a pretty interesting statement. He says, I know that where you are dwelling, Satan's seat is there. Now we understand Satan is not like God. He is not omnipresent. He is not everywhere. So this is a pretty significant uh, observation that is made that Satan has a seat 
in this city. Now, now we're talking about the idea of a seat. We're not talking about like church where people have a seat, you know, and uh, your name's not on it, but you sit there, you know, every service and uh, the preacher can come up here and, and he can look to one row. And if you're not there on that row, it's because you're not here because that's where your seat is. Where he's not just talking about some place where Satan is sitting. The word seat has a specific meaning. Here's what it means. A throne, a chair of, tribun of tribunal, post of authority as the seat of judgment. So here's the idea. In the biblical time, you had a seat. And it would have been a couch. It would have been more like a throne. And, and you'd have a seat. And the seat was the place where the person of authority would sit. A king, a prince, a ruler of some kind. And he would sit in the seat, and when he would sit in the seat, here's what he would do. He would exercise authority from the seat. In other words, he would give a judgment. He would give an order. He would give a command. And from the seat, it would be carried out. So the ruler comes to the seat. He sits down. Captains, generals, servants, people would come. They would speak to him. And he would, he would tell them what needs to happen. And from, get this, from the seat, the ruler's power, his authority was carried out where he was. Now I want to remind us tonight that Satan is real. I'm not into getting all weird and, and trying to over, you know, do things and look for Satan in every single thing. But I think sometimes we are on the wrong side of this and, and we fail to realize that Jesus spoke of him as the prince of the power of the air, that he is a real being and he has real power. And Jesus said this, that in the city of Pergamos, Satan has an, a place of authority. He has a place of power. And in that city, he is carrying out, he is exercising his rule in the region of Asia through the city of Pergamos. Which leads me to ask this question, how does he do that? How does Satan carry out his authority in a physical city with physical people? Well, if you take the time to read about Pergamos, you can read this from, from spiritual commentary and also even from secular historians. You'll, you'll find a couple very significant details about Pergamos. The first one is this, that Pergamos was really one of the leading centers of, of idolatry and worship in that region of Asia. You could go there and you would find a 45-foot altar dedicated to, to Zeus. You would find a healing center that was committed to the god Asclepios and literally became a university of healing. So all over the city was paganism and the worship of, of the pantheon of gods. But that is not, now get this, but that is not what separated Pergamos from all the other cities. Pergamos was the first city to initiate worship of the Caesar. So what they did is they declared Augustus, Caesar Augustus, to not just be a ruler, to not just be a king. They declared him to be deity and they created a temple and they began to initiate, they began to create this religious idea that Caesar Augustus was a God that needed to be worshipped. Now get this. So from the city of Pergamos, throughout the Roman Empire, 
which was pretty much all of the known world, from Pergamus, the idea, the, the belief system that Caesar was God and needed to be worshipped, came out of the city of Pergamus. In other words, here is how Satan ruled. Satan created a false belief, a false idea, a false religion. And he sat there in the city and he, through his spirits, put that in the minds and hearts of people and he spread that idea throughout the known world. Here is how Satan gains rule and reign and influence in cities and in countries and all over the world through false ideas and false religion. He sits, he creates, and he imparts these beliefs, these ideas, these ideologies, and they begin to spread. And through that, Satan begins to gain power and exercise dominion and exercise authority throughout a region. Which leads me to this question, why? Why, why does Satan go to Pergamus, create this idea of, of, of emperor worship and spread that throughout the known world? Well, look at verse 13. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you. Notice the connection. Who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Okay. So when the belief that Caesar is God comes out, there's all these other religions. Do you know that all these other religions would have had no problem adding Caesar to their list of gods? If you worshipped Zeus, if you worshipped Athena, if you worshipped Asclepios, you'd have no problem going and bowing down uh, uh, to Caesar. So when this, when this rule and this religion came out, m most of the people that lived wouldn't have had a problem with it, except one group of people. A group of people who believed in one God and bowing to no other gods. And not, listen, and not ascribing any other person as God. And that was the Christians that existed in that region. So when that doctrine began to come out, it had Roman power. It had Roman authority. It had police, government authority behind it. And when the Christians stood up and said, we will not bow, we will not worship, we will not go, then here's what came, persecution. And one day there's a man named Antipas. I, I have to believe he's a significant person in the local church there at Pergamus. And, and I don't know if it was while they were worshiping or while he was in the marketplace. But one day, I, I believe in a very public setting, they come and they take Antipas, who's a fellow Christian in the local Baptist church there in Pergamus, and they take him and they execute him in front of all the people for all the Christians to see why? Why are they doing that? Here's why. Because Satan wants to completely snuff out Christianity. Do you know why Satan creates false ideas? Do you know why Satan creates false beliefs? He does it so that it will rise and gain traction and gain power. And that, it, listen to me, it doesn't matter if it's atheism. It doesn't matter what ism it is. It will always eventually end with a spear with imprisonment, 
with animosity facing Christianity. Here's why. Because through the ism, Satan is trying to completely eliminate Christianity. Let me say this. And in three-fourths of the world, he's been very successful. We could go to India. 1.4 billion people. Out of the 1.4 billion people in India, 1.1 billion of them are Hindus. 198 million of them are Muslims. And when you tack all of the other belief systems on top of that, outside of Christianity, here's what you have. Over 1.3 billion of them are unsaved. Let's just look at it this way. If you were to take the numbers and you took, the, you took the state of Texas and the population, that could represent the amount of Christians that exist in India. So it says, well, man, that's pretty good. There's a lot of people in Texas. Okay? If you take the United States of America and you times that times three, that's how many lost people are in India. Can I tell you that through Hinduism and through Islam and other religions, Christianity is being snuffed out and it is being silenced and 1.3 billion out of 1.4 are not Christian. You could go over to Thailand, 69 million people where 65 million of them are Buddhists. Three-fourths of that country lie in utter darkness without salvation. I saw with my own eyes as my wife and I this last February went to Colombo, there in Sri Lanka, and there, listen, they're at five in the morning, and it didn't matter if you were in the bustling urban areas of Colombo or you were in the most remote districts of the tea country, no matter where you were, the chance of the Buddhists would not just, they would not just find you in some remote, distant way. They would surround you. They would confront you. No matter where you were, you could hear the Buddhists. No matter what hill you looked to, no matter what taxi cab you looked in, no matter what hotel you walked into, there were gods upon gods. There were sacrifices on the streets. There were people offering incense and praying on filthy street corners and makeshift sheds turned into temples unto the Hindu gods. And as I saw all of that, I saw the rule and reign of Satan. And here we are taking tracks opening out a window, throwing tracks out the window, knowing that many of these people that live in villages with 100, 200,000 people, that that piece of paper may be the only gospel they'll ever get. I want to say this. This is real life. And we have a real enemy who is sitting on a real seat in this planet and he is propagating false ideas and false beliefs and he has one goal he has one mission to completely eradicate Christianity on the globe and America is not exempt right here in the northern California I grew up in southern California Right here in Northern California, we don't, you don't face the ites of the Old Testament, you face the isms of the New Testament. 
And can I say this? I think a lot of times we got this idea that we think, well, we're going to have our belief, and this group of people is going to have their belief, and this group of people is going to have their belief. Can I tell you something? That, that is not how this is going to end. That is not the goal. The, the goal is not to have, let Heritage Baptist Church have their church, and let the temple have their temple, and, and, and let the atheist. No, no, no. The goal is this. The goal is we're willing to have everything in this country except Christianity. Well, why is that? Because Satan wants to eradicate Christianity from the earth. There's no such thing as coexist with Satan. He, he wants this gone. He wants that flag gone. He wants to completely remove it. And I want to say this with the utmost sobriety that in the 1040 corridor and so much of Asia, he is successful right now. So he has a seat. 22 million people in Sri Lanka, 21.7 of them are lost right now and on their way to hell. And so, so, say, so Jesus recognizes that. Well, then look what he says in verse 13. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. Okay, so Jesus is commending them for doing something. You, you commend people for doing something because you know that that's not their natural inclination to do that. You commend people for doing something because it's not easy for them to do that. Do you know what Jesus knew? That there is a human response to opposition. So imagine you're a church member. You're in Pergamos. You've been worshiping the Lord. You've been following the Lord. And there's a brother in your church, maybe on the pastoral staff, maybe a deacon. His name's Antipas. And you watch him get grabbed out of the congregation or get snatched out of the marketplace. And you watch them kill him in front of you. Do you know what your flesh is saying? Uh, I don't know about this. I, I don't know about... No, no, no. I'm guaranteeing you next Sunday service, there were a lot of people wondering if they should show up. Do you know what the natural inclination of a believer because of our human flesh is when persecution or opposition comes? Here's what it is to go silent. There's two ways that Christians in America right now are going silent. First of all, we're, we're going silent in the United States. While people are waving their flags and posting all kinds of doctrine and propaganda and truth, do you know what we're not seeing? We're not seeing enough Christians stand up and share what they believe. We're not seeing enough Christians stand up and say, I'm a Christian. No, no, no. And without, without well, we don't want to, you know, judge and, you know, I want to be accepting and loving. I'm not talking about being rude. I'm not talking about being crude. I'm not talking about being aggressive or foolish at when you say what you say. But I'm telling you, all over the United States of America, Christians are loud inside the building, but the door knocking and the witnessing and the evangelism effort is getting very silent 
because Christians, because the natural tendency of the human condition is when we begin to, no, no, it's easier. So it's easy to give tracts out when everyone around you is a believer or at least recognizes your faith. But when everyone in the culture that you live in sees it completely different, the natural thing is, well, I just don't want to ruffle any feathers. I want to say this. The second way is this. We're silent to the condition of the world. We're so blessed in our country to be able to, to, go to, to go to school and to go to university, to pick up trades and, and become engineers and work in the science field and work in the medical field and have jobs and, and provide for our families and, and really live wonderful lives. And I know that here in this region, I mean, I'm amazed at how y'all park uh, and all that stuff. I mean, I thought Southern California was bad. You, I, cannot, I don't know how y'all do what you do parking uh, in the city. But even with all that being said, we live, we live better than three-fourths of the world. And you know what happens as, as we have promise and opportunity and, and goals and all these things in front of us and comforts and we look out there and we see oppression and we see opposition and we see living in, in, in adverse conditions and climates and learning languages and going through all these struggles. Do you, know, do you know what our tendency is? Our tendency is to say someone else will go to the mission field. No, no, someone else will go to Africa, someone else will go to China, someone else will go to India, someone else will go to Sri Lanka. And can I just tell you, here's the harsh reality. The harsh reality is we are not sending enough laborers for the mission field right now. I've, I have many people come to me, preacher, and I, and I understand their heart with this. So this isn't a criticism. I've had many people come to me and say, man, are you sure about taking your family to Sri Lanka? Are you sure about going with your special needs son? And, and so I understand the heart because it's, it's the right heart. But every once in a while, I want to answer back and say this. Okay, if I don't go, will you? I mean, I understand. It is a legitimate concern. But if I don't go to Sri Lanka, will you? Because, because I don't know if preacher remembers this. It was in 2003 that we sat, we, we sat, had pie after a service. And, and my wife and I, as juniors in Bible college, conveyed to them that we had surrendered to the field of Sri Lanka. And from 2003, 2004, God puts it on pause. And here we are in 2019. And listen to me, it wasn't like during those 16 years that the need was taken care of. Because you know what? We're going to work with Brother Unruh. And guess what? There's only one other single man there right now that's come from America to help. So I'm just saying this. If there's been 16 years for somebody to go, there's been 16 years for someone to go in, in the stead of Brother Hetzer, but nobody's gone. And somebody needs to go. The tendency of, of, of our life and the blessings of our life is to not hold fast to the faith of Jesus Christ here and global where it is needed so desperately. So, so he knows that. So, but then notice, I want you to notice again what he says uh, in verse 13. I know thy works... And where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelt. Okay, so let's establish something. Jesus knew 
Jesus knew the severity of those people being in the city. Would you agree with that statement? He was aware that one of their church members had just been killed. So Jesus knew it was dangerous. Jesus knew it was hostile. Jesus knew that there was persecution. He just says, I am aware that this is going on. Yet with all of that going on, he says this in verse 13. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. Do you know what Jesus doesn't say here? Antipas is martyred. Antipas has been killed. Persecution is coming. Get out of purgatory. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say relocate and go somewhere that's safer. Go somewhere that's more comfortable. Go somewhere where the the gospel can move forward with ease. Do you know what he says? He says, I know that men are dying there, yet you are holding fast, yet you are not denying my name. In other words, Jesus, get this, Jesus expected them to hold fast because he called them to be there. Jesus doesn't say, well, man, California is really liberal, so move out of the state and let the whole state go to hell. I understand he moves people out of the state of California. I get that. He doesn't say, okay, now you're a church in a very liberal community. Be careful about evangelism. Are you with me tonight? You know what he says? I know where you dwell. But I put you there. I called you there. I positioned you there. And I expect you to hold fast to my name. And I expect you to hold fast to my faith. And I'm telling you that Jesus Christ, when he called the Hetzer family to Sri Lanka, he knew we had two special needs children. He knew that they have dinghy fever there. He knew that there would be obstacles and trials. But Jesus doesn't say, well, Brother David, since you have special needs children, don't go. Brother David, because there's risks out there, don't go. No, the Lord says, David, I have called you. I am empowering you so go and hold fast my name he expects people to go to Yemen and Iraq the trail of the Christian faith is a trail of blood and I don't know but 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 somewhere in the 2000s or maybe a little earlier we got to a place where we decided that when something becomes risky, then it must not be wise. But the truth of the matter is, is that God calls men and women to go to the uttermost parts of the earth and to hazard their life and to leave back their possessions and their comforts for the sake of his name because he loves this world and he wants to redeem it before time is gone. And he tells him to hold fast. We love that quote of C.T. Studd, don't we? Some want to live within the sound of the church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. C.T. Studd died a long time ago. We need some C.T. Studds. Some C.T. Studd-ets. 
who will go to the far reaches of the earth and as Brother Travis said, point to a tree and say, God, bury me here. I will hold fast your name no matter what the obstacles because you have called me here. Now, I want you to notice one other thing here in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he, <laughs> which hath the sharp sword with two edges. The word of God is very deliberate. He wasn't just throwing out some, some sword. Jesus wasn't just saying a sword. This sword was a famous Thracian broadsword. Now get this, that became, became the symbol of the might of the Roman Empire during Calvary charges. So when the Roman Empire would come to a city to conquer it, to take it over, to occupy it, they would wave the banner of the double-edged sword saying this, we have the might to take over your stronghold. You know what Jesus is saying here to the church? Jesus is saying to the church of Pergamos, I am aware, I am aware that Satan has a seat here. I am aware that he has power. I am aware that he is working in conjunction with the Roman Empire. I am aware that Antipas has been martyred. I am aware that things are going to get even worse. I am aware of all these things that are taking place. He has a seat here, but Jesus said this, Satan may have a seat, but I have the sword. And he is saying that Satan may have power and Satan may have authority, but Rome does not have the greatest power. Rome does not have the greatest authority. And that if Jesus wants to charge in with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and His people into the city of Pergamos that He can save, that He can call, that He can, listen, He can change a city because He has the sword and is more powerful than Satan. I want to remind us, I want to remind us, Satan may have a seat here, but Jesus has the sword. I want to remind you that yes, Satan is gaining influence in the United States of America, but he does not have the sword. No, Satan may have a seat in Sri Lanka. He may have a seat in Korea. He may have a seat in the Philippines, but he does not have a sword. Listen, and God could take any vessel and he can use them like a cavalry to go in and to redeem the souls of men and women. I think about a, a country man, Brother Hoffman, called to go to South Korea. An innumerable amount of souls. Joel Travis spends his life in the mountains as isolated as he can be. Calls him to the bustling, compact area of Nepal. I think about the Kansas man, Brother Unruh driving through the wide open cornfields of Kansas, called to go where there is no open fields in Colombo. And God took those couples, and God took those families. And you know what we've heard this week? No, no, no. We've heard about people getting saved. We've heard about churches being planted. We've heard about national pastors training other pastors 
and out of those churches sending pastors. We've heard of villages. We've heard of God taking refugees from one country and bringing them to the next country so that they could be saved over well over 150 in the Pakistani ministry. No, we've heard about a, a brother who uses, who uses a translator in South Korea and God has empowered him and he's been there for 21 years and through him, great things are happening. You know what it sounds a lot like to me? It sounds to me like that yes, Satan may have a seat but Jesus has a sword and if a man or a woman will give their life at their office or on their street or in their neighborhood or in a village in Africa or going somewhere in the 1040 window that the Holy Spirit can empower them and use them to make a difference that Satan himself cannot stop. Satan, no, no. Satan may have a seat, but Jesus has the sword. Which leads me to two questions. First question, will you be part of Christ's sword here? Will you allow the Lord to use you at your job and in your neighborhood and in the outreach events of this church and the ministries of this church? Will you allow, will you be used of God? Listen, as the Lord has been doing with this church from when it started off as a Bible study and now we see what we, no, no, I don't think the Lord's done here. And would you allow the Lord to use you as a sword right here to, to one by one take down the strongholds of Satan in this region? My second question is this. Will you be part of the sword of Jesus for the world? The first way is this, faith promise. The, the Lord's calling the Hetzers to go to Sri Lanka. The Lord's calling the Mislins to the Philippines. Travis has been in Nepal. The others have been in their respective fields. Do you know what faith promise is? Faith promise isn't just about filling out a card and putting money. Faith promise is about funding God's work of the Calvary and going throughout the world to reach places that are completely under the dominion of Satan's influence. Will you be part of that? Maybe, maybe you've been a part of it. Maybe the Holy Spirit would have you do more in that. If the Holy Spirit would call you, would you be willing to go yourself? Would you be willing to go to Thailand? Would you be willing to go to China? Would you be willing to go to Tanzania? Would you be willing to go to Sri Lanka? Would you be willing to plant another church here in the Bay? Our job is so simple. Our job is to take the sword of Christ to the seat of Satan and watch the Lord do the impossible. The question is simply this. Will we let go or will we hold fast and be part of the work of Christ? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.